welcome to VB Engage episode 44. My name is Stuart Rogers from VentureBeat and I am joined as ever by the author of Digital Sense. It is the one and only Travis Wright. Travis, how are you doing? Ah, I am doing excellent, Mr. Stuart Rogers, and I am not the one and only. There are about 600 Travis Wrights. That doesn't seem even remotely possible, <laughs> and also it's an incredibly scary thought. I'm That's, just going to put that out there. Well, I tell you what, we took into effect the attack of the clones, and we've been doing a little backdoor science stuff, and there's 600 of us now, so you will be assimilated. Eventually, we'll all be Travis. <laughs> That is a scary fool. I'm very sorry, listeners, for putting you through what a the trauma world of thinking about six hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yes, where are you today, Mr. Stuart Rogers? Uh, I am in VentureBeat's uh, headquarters down here in San Francisco. Um, if you can hear any wonderful background noise, it's because San Francisco has an incredibly busy. Uh, street called Market Street. We are on the corner of Battery and Market. It's always super, super noisy in the background. So, but at least it's authentic noise, right? I know you're in Kansas City today, but you were over in uh, in Austin, Southwest, weren't you? Yeah, I was in. Uh, you know, I did a few things. I was in Manila uh, last week, and I was there for about eight or nine days, and then went to South by Southwest for a couple of days, and then flew up to Vancouver, actually up to Kamloops in, in British Columbia. Spoke at Thompson Rivers University there a couple of days ago. But yeah, South by Southwest was an interesting time. One of the only cities in the world that I've traveled that does not have Uber or Lyft, which is very convenient. Listeners, you can't see my face, but when Travis just explained that, my chin hit the actual floor. Apparently, last year, there was an issue where the city of Austin wanted every driver to get some background and fingerprints and some other stuff. And... Uber and Lyft didn't like that, and so now what's happened in its place is there are like five or six very mediocre rideshare apps in its place, and South by Southwest found the brunt of that on uh, the 13th, on Sunday actually, where it was raining very heavily, and none of the rideshare apps worked because their database were all overloaded. There was all these cars driving around with no passengers and all these pissed off passengers with no cars to pick them up so really enjoyed that uh, it's first world problems but at the same time you know a lot of friends who, who did explain that situation to me that whole situation around austin it's kind of backfired because although lyft and uber you know they do do some background checks it's not the sort of full-blown background checks that the city of austin wanted but as a result Kinds of means that rather than having some background checks and having services there that are, that are trying really hard to make sure that their drivers are, you know, good and right and proper, it led to this sort of situation where potentially, you know, people were being picked up by whoever because it's kind of just, you know, we need a lift, so they're they're yeah. getting, you know, a lift from somewhere, and right. that's actually causing a worse problem it's, yeah. um, there's been another problem with uber in other cities as well where maybe somebody who was a foreigner who was on uber and then they went back to their home and instead of you know having their friend or whatever sign up for uber to be a driver they just basically gave them their account there's been issues i've had a few friends who've been in cars where the driver wasn't the driver that was on the thing and one even had an accident they got t-boned while this guy was not a very good driver and um, they ended up taking uber to court and it was just a crazy scenario. I'm not going to go into the details on that. When everybody has facial recognition, it's almost like, all right, it's me driving, click, click, chip, chip, you know, AI can do facial recognition, or maybe they provide everybody with a phone, so maybe they all use their fingerprint to verify that it's them. I mean, there's some very 
easy solutions to this problem. Uh, and so I think that was one of the things that Austin was trying to avoid was having drivers that weren't who they say they were and not having drivers with bad criminal records. However, that problem did not get solved. And the technology solution for that seems to be relatively easy to me. I would absolutely agree with you. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned AI there because I guess we ought to get into the news and it, it involves quite a lot of AI this week, the news. Straight after the news, we've got a fantastic interview you're absolutely going to love uh, with Olga Kay, where we're going to talk about all sorts of incredible things. Um, Olga's you know, really just had an uh, amazing career and an amazing life, and uh, she was one of the uh, really early YouTube influencers, and so she gives us a lot of secrets and a lot of tips and hints on how to create amazing content and how to get such a, a great audience. Uh, so let's dig in. I mean, Larry Kim, you've heard of Larry Kim, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I love uh, Larry Kim. I actually spoke after him at an event a couple of weeks ago in San Diego. That dude has more unicorns in his presentation deck than are on the marketing technology landscape, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so he founded WordStream, right? Yeah. Really, really amazing. I mean, probably one of the best paid search marketing platforms available anywhere, I would have said. Paid search, paid social. I mean, they're killing it with Facebook ads and, you know, AdWords and some of the other platforms that they're doing. I believe they have, you know, over 10,000 clients that are helping to power that eight-figure revenue that they have. It's kind of interesting, you know, he's built a really amazing company. They've got a couple of hundred people working there. It's winning. It's got a great revenue, apparently, according to the, the story that John Kutzi broke on uh, on VentureBeat this week. But he's leaving what is a winning company to basically go back to his, his roots as a product developer. And he's building a marketing bot company. You know what? That seems like something we've been talking about literally every single week. Now, what's interesting about this is that, you know, he's, he's building these bots. He's, he's, he's going in and, and creating these different tools for clients. I guess he's already have about 40 clients using this. His new gig is called Mobile Monkey and uh, building marketing bots for messaging platforms for companies to be able to easily communicate with their customers. So I guess the scenario is this, if you're looking for a new dentist, you can find him or her online and you initiate a conversation with Facebook Messenger and which ultimately avoid, uh, you know, turns into a booked appointment. So they're building that technology that's gonna bridge that gap between those uh, desktop and mobile conversion rates, he said. That's a really interesting take on the problem because chatbots have their issues, but you know, this is, this is interesting. It's kind of closing the loop on a lead. It's more of a sort of a demand generation play for chatbots rather than what everyone else is trying to do, which is either solve customer service problems with chatbots or, or try and generate revenue with chatbots. This is more demand gen. It's more closing the loop on, on a lead. And that's kind of interesting. I, I think that's uh, pretty smart. It seems you know, interesting. You know, one of the things is, is that, you know, it's like, he has this great business that already has ridiculous value when it comes to, to search. It has tremendous content, right? So they're putting out tons and tons and tons of content. Why didn't he just create BotStream? Why didn't he just do a spinoff, you know, of a, on that? Or he wanted to have it as its own separate entity, I suppose. But uh, interesting play there. If you think about what Larry has, I mean, he's, he's got nothing but positive things to say about WordStream. Mm -hmm. He doesn't seem to be leaving under a cloud. He's still the majority owner. He still wants the company to be a success. I guess he just wants to, to go back to his roots and you know do something new, right? And have a bit of fun again. I mean, maybe he's just got to the point where there's no extra growth for him within WordStream, so he's he's got to go do something new. Right. It's kind of interesting, you know. I mean, 
are chatbots the right thing to be going into right now? I've researched a whole bunch of consumers, you know, like a thousand consumers to understand who's using messenger platforms, which ones they're using, how many different ones are on people's phones, and whether they're using chatbots or not. If they're using chatbots, you know, do they care about them as a, a way to interact with brands? And that was one of the things I asked. I wanted to know if you were given a choice between an app and a mobile website and a chatbot, which is the one that you are going to go to first in order to interact with a brand? Travis, which of those would you go to first, just from a personal perspective? You know, if I'm going to go interact with a brand, I I go straight to Twitter. <laughs> I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to assume that a brand's going to have a chatbot at this stage, right? It's very nascent, it's beginning stages of the of the chatbot and AI marketing, you know, machine learning revolution. So what do I do? I would go find their email or, you know, tweet them and uh, rant that way. You know, we've talked about this in the past. I still think that chatbots have a discovery problem. If you look at Messenger, most users of messengers are using you know facebook messenger as their app of choice there's not an easy way to find chatbots on uh, messenger now you can find games very easy now with facebook day i can find that feature very easy find my friends that i've communicated with very easy recently right i can't find chatbots very easily so no wonder that facebook might be having a challenge with adoption of chatbots on messenger there's that discovery issue and then you know, in terms of the consumers I um, surveyed, you know, only 13% would use a chatbot over using an app or over using the, the mobile web. In fact, it was like 68% would just use the app. They would use the app over web, use the app over the chatbot. And that's partly because chatbots have an engagement issue. In order to, to make something engaging, and, you know, we talk about engagement a lot on VB Engage. Of course, that's it's in the name, right? What it says I think we're going to change it to uh, VBAI. <laughs> it's, that's not going to happen. In order for you to be engaging, you have to get an emotion out of somebody, right? And the problem with chatbots, especially, you know, since a lot of them are created by technical people who are, you know, doing their level best to create a chatbot that does something useful, but they're not necessarily employing professional writers to write the script and to get some kind of emotion out of you. And if you don't, not getting an emotion from somebody then it's really hard to get any kind of engagement or any feeling from them that, that you know they'll actually come back and try it again and come back and, and use it again because they're not feeling good about it. And so you know that's one of the biggest issues with chatbots right now. Is there's a lot that are very text-heavy. When you type in a question, they don't give you the response you're expecting. And then when they do give you a response, it's quite dry and it's not engaging because it's not making you feel anything. Some of the best ones that are out there are the best because... They've employed professional writers to write the scripts and they've thought about every eventuality and every question. And also, some of the other really good ones out there are not just using text, they're actually guiding you with buttons and menu systems and that kind of thing and images, which all go to creating a much, much better chatbot experience. And that's something that I think is a lesson for everybody on those. At South by Southwest, Mark Cuban said, you know, AI is going to be the biggest business changer that we will ever see. We will see more advances in the next 10 years than the last 30. Applying AI to industrial knowledge will drive the innovation. The world's first trillionaire will come from a person that is in the AI industry. That's probably not a bad bet. We've got a lot that's going to happen in the AI world. In a, Facebook actually recently 
started scaling back on their AI and on chatbots because they found that they had something like a, a 70% failure rate. Did you see that? I, I did see that. So it's a discovery problem. It's an engagement problem. It's maybe a content problem. And it's a challenge, right, to make a, an artificial voice seem like it's a human and have empathy and have humor and have a little bit of pizzazz, right, where it's very text-heavy. It's not – a lot of times they're not interesting. I can get bored with them pretty quickly. I'll test them out for a little bit, and then I'll be like, yeah, I'm done with you. I wonder as we go, you know, as we move forward over the course of these next three to five years with 5G coming out and, again, everybody having that 20 to 30 gigabit connection and, and things being working and processing a lot faster and being able to input all this data into that and have it come out with a voice that sounds like a real person and real emotion and real personality. I think maybe we'll get there. It's one of those things where it's like a double-edged sword. We've talked about it in the past. You know, it's like AI and machine learning is all great until you reach the point of no return. How do you put a limit on what AI and machine learning can do that way humans can still live long and prosperous, right? So right. Facebook said they're rolling back a little bit. They're scaling back because actually they unveiled a, a bot API at their uh, F8 conference back in last April. A lot of high hopes for that. And they see what Tencent's WeChat had done. If you're over in Asia, you could see what Tencent has done. It's amazing how they've moved into this platform where e-commerce and all these transactions happen on that messenger platform. And so I think Zuckerberg was, was joining that chatbot's arm race, as they said, and creating this conversations as a platform. And so they're testing it out and they're just noticing that maybe some of the users aren't maybe not as happy with the experience and so they're not as engaged with it. Maybe it's not quite ready. But what's funny is if you look at like BuzzSumo and you go through and you're like, Oh, let's see over the last week, what are people talking about marketing AI? And you're like, oh, why Cosabella replaced its agency with AI and will never go back to humans. And why you should introduce machine learning into your marketing now. And here comes the marketing bots, the role of marketing learning in AI and marketing. Oh, marketing's artificial intelligence revolution is here. The end of marketing as we know it, right? And so there's <laughs> all of these pro, pro, pro AI, AI, machine learning. And then you have a company like Facebook who is one of the most mature companies in social, right? They have all these developers. They're doing all this stuff. They're testing all these things. And they're saying, eh, it's not quite ready yet. And we're going to scale back a little bit. And but then everybody else is saying, yeah. So I guess we'll see. <laughs> Another example of people being upset and, you know, again, AI related, Google Home users heard what was effectively an advertisement. You can basically say to Google Home, tell me about my day. And it gives you a daily update, right? And it gives you this, uh, you know, the weather and it gives you your commute times because it knows where you're going to go into work and it can read out your calendar events and all that good stuff. And then what it did is it said, by the way, Disney's live action Beauty and the Beast opens today. In this version of the story, Belle is the inventor instead of Maurice. That rings truer, if you ask me. For some movie fun, ask me to tell you about Belle. And it's like, right. it started going crazy. And then Google actually came out and said, well, it's not an ad. It's, it's not an ad. We're inviting our partners to, uh, to be our guest. And it's like, be our guest. Be, that was a total guest. Disney thing to say, isn't it? No. <laughs> they actually nice. said in an email, the beauty in the assistant 
is that it invites our partners to be our guest and share their tales. Oh, it's, wow. it's somebody at Google was like a massive Disney fan and, and decided to write that email back. It's kind of a Mickey Mouse operation to be uh, putting those ads in there like I knew, that. I knew that Mickey Mouse operation job was coming. Yeah, obviously it's an ad. Right? We know it's an ad. Google is saying it's not an ad. It's just part of their My Day feature. Maybe it was a test and they weren't. They didn't call it an ad because they didn't pay for it, but that's obviously a blatant ad. And it was removed by like Thursday afternoon. They were obviously had so many people complain about it. But the, the thing is, is you know, this is another indicator that as we go towards this world of artificial intelligence we've got the uh, messenger apps we've got chatbots we've got natural language processing of course we've got voice control we've got this whole conversational user interface with alexa and google home and, and all of these things you know as we move towards that these people are uh, obviously they've got to make money right and google is an advertising company of course it's a search company but really it's an advertising company and they've got to make some money somewhere so they've got to test the waters and, and quite clearly consumers are not ready you to take something that is utilitarian and useful like the my day feature and insert an advert in there there might be other places that they could have inserted an advert that wouldn't have been so controversial acceptable to people but one of the things about google one of the reasons we give google all of our personal information and we allow them to have all of that data is because they give us really useful things like google assistant and google now that help us through our day at the point where you ask for all that personal um, information and then all you give back is advertising, that's when you upset people, right? So Absolutely. Well, I mean, if you look at it, most like you just said it, most everything that they do revolves around advertising. So I'm here in Kansas City and I'm on Google Fiber, right? I got a gigabit connection into my home. It's very fast. Their original plan was, oh, we're going to tap in here. We're going to see what you're doing. We're going to view all your internet traffic, and we're going to showcase ads to you. I've seen ads on, on my Google Fiber television. Now, they've since pulled back on the global or the at least nationwide uh, launch of Google Fiber, but it was it's very much an ad-driven play, most everything that they do, including YouTube. Right, they bought YouTube for 1.6 billion dollars, which turns into be the steal of the freaking century. And YouTube's very great when it talk when when you consider how creators are actually able to you know use U YouTube and make money from that. So advertising's not all bad, and uh, as long as you are creating and being part of it, you know that that's great. As long as it's relevant, we don't like irrelevant ads, but as long as they are relevant, we're good with that, right? You know, and speaking of YouTube. How about we get into this brilliant conversation uh, with Olga K, one of the early YouTube influencers? Let's uh, let's just get into that, Travis, because it's one of the best interviews we've done. Don't you agree? She's awesome. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a great treat for us today. We have the one and only Olga K with us. She is the founder and CEO of Moosh Walks Socks. And if you haven't seen these, these are completely epic, giving your feet personality. And Olga is actually from a Russian village, joined the circus, and then somehow got on YouTube and became amazing, or everybody discovered her amazingness. So, Olga, welcome to VB Engage. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. That's the best introduction I've ever had. It's funny, actually, because I, I grew up in a, in a village in the UK, uh, which has become a circus recently. Yes. And Yes. We have a lot in common, and we have a lot to talk about. I grew up in a small <laughs> village in Missouri, and I was told that I should join the circus. So, 
So see, we're all meant to come together under the same screen. <laughs> exactly. Here we are. Here we are. Um, Olga, it's, it's been amazing actually watching your content, the content you produce over the last several years. Um, I started watching your content on YouTube and that of, of all of the people that were around you at the time. There were lots of people who were really getting into YouTube and really figuring out how to make it work first. I mean, you know, that's something that is still even today, even in 2017, people struggle to create content that is interesting and engaging and different. And, you know, everyone's just doing the same old, same old. What's, what's the secret? You know, how, how did you get into it first? And, you know, what's the secret of creating content that's different and engaging? Because that's really where the, uh, where the magic is, right? So I've been on YouTube for 10 years now almost 11. So I started in the beginning. And I always say I'm so proud that I was part of the golden era of YouTube. And it changed so much. And when we, all of us started, it was very driven by creativity. I think every single person who was on the platform, because it was not monetized, it was just a lot of people that just had this internal need to create something and share it with the world and connect in some ways. And so I started back in 2006 and that's exactly a year after YouTube was launched. So there was no one on the platform really. The number one channel had 10,000 subscribers and I fell into YouTube because back then I was doing a lot of juggling and I had a friend who's a juggler and he said, can you please create an account and just like and favorite my video and rate them five stars and that's the rating system we had back then and just comment and I asked him why and he said, well, the more people, you know, comment on my videos, the more popular I'll become. And I was like, oh, this is so weird. And at that time, my English also wasn't that good. And he keeps saying to me, um, there's this YouTube, just go to youtube.com and create a account. And I was like, and all I could hear is YouTube.com. And I was just like, why YouTube, the band, has a website that shares videos? <laughs> like, it just made yeah. no sense. <laughs> and of course, I, every time I went to YouTube.com, I was not ending up on YouTube. So finally, he's like, no, it's YouTube. So I came to this platform and I created an account just to help out my friend. And as I was doing that, I realized that there's this other videos that are popping out. And I remember watching one of the first videos I've seen were made by Lisa Nova and Lonely Girl 15. And it was these girls talking to camera about their day. And I couldn't understand why I was so fascinated, but I was just drawn in and listening to those girls talk. And at that time, I was really discovering what is the next thing that I'm going to be doing. I really didn't want to be in a circus anymore. Uh, juggling jobs were, you know, coming and going, and, and I didn't have passion for it anymore. So I decided that I should do the same because I have a fun personality, so why can't I do the same? And my problem back then was I didn't have a camera, I didn't have a computer, and I didn't know how to edit videos. And talking to camera was also really terrifying. So I had all these obstacles in front of me, and which is really funny because I actually turned that into my career in the next few years. That's really awesome. Yeah, that is. That's great. So, And you actually have multiple different channels, right? So you have your main Olga K YouTube, Olga K2, Olga K Games, Mooshville, Mooshwalks. So you have 
When my channel became really popular, I really wanted to separate my content because I wanted to tell them about my day, but I couldn't put it on my main channel. And at that time, we didn't have the shelf system or playlist system. So I had to start new channels and video games in particular. I wanted to play video games so bad and I had all the consoles in my living room, but it would take so much time and creating content requires a lot of time too. So I thought to myself, well, maybe if I turn it into my job, then I'll have the excuse sitting there playing video games all night. So that's how that channel was born. And I, I would say my fans probably love that channel the best because I'm not a good gamer and I would be so emotional when I'm playing <laughs> the games and I would get killed yeah. <laughs> or blown up by, you know, creepers in Minecraft. So yeah, I started all these channels and I separated my different content in, in different places, which is actually, uh, looking back now, I feel like that was one of the mistakes because uh, we only had the solutions to do that but i i feel like that's the mistake because um if if we had the tools available when i started doing that i could have built this huge network of shows under one umbrella instead of splitting the audience right well let me ask you this so uh, my son he's 15 and he loves video games i started him out really early of, of understanding code and now he's getting into video editing and he really wants to you know, and I know there's a lot of people out there and probably people who are listening to this podcast right now because you're on it, they want to know, well, how could I become more successful with my content creation? And, and now knowing what you know after having been into this game now for 10 and a half years on YouTube and creating all this great content, if somebody was starting out now and you could tell them some magic, give them some magical sprinkle dust, what would you tell them to help them get rolling? I would give one advice, and I would give this advice not only to content creators, but everyone else in the world doing different things, is you have to work really, really hard to figure out what are the gaps and fill in those gaps because there's so much has been created already. There's so many copycats. There's so many things. And the end of 2016, you know, out of nowhere, hot knife videos were like the most viral videos on YouTube. And so you have to see what people haven't done uh, in combination with um, uh, what is your passion. I remember when I became really popular on YouTube, I really sat down. I started thinking, well, who is my demographic? I went to so many YouTube gatherings and I've met so many teenage girls. So it was pretty clear that, and at that time we didn't have any analytics. So we couldn't know exactly who was watching our videos. And uh, so going to YouTube gatherings, seeing all these teenage girls, I was like, okay, I'm shocked. I thought a bunch of dudes gonna be watching my videos, but it's actually teenage girls, which is fantastic. So my demographic up until this day is 70% females. So once I knew I had this information, I started thinking, well, if I was a teenage girl, what would I wanna see? And what what do girls talk about? And since I get to see what my fans were talking about all the time, I created an emo character, someone who is really relatable uh, to teenage girls complaining about everything, hating her life, and just want to have fun. And that character became so relatable to everyone who was watching me, and it became more shareable. So I, I guess the goal on YouTube is what can you create that people will share? And for other people that are trying to make it on YouTube, I feel like now we have so many options. Don't just put your content on YouTube. Create the same content, but put it on Facebook and snippets of it on Instagram because the Gen Zs of the world are musically and not necessarily YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to be where uh, the younger generation is at because those are the ones that have the most amount of time to watch you and to share with their friends. So go where they are. 
So let me get that right. Complaining about everything and wanting to have fun. So that means I'm a teenage girl. Excellent. See? <laughs> I, I feel like we established that earlier. You know, you're on all different platforms. Do you, do you think that, because Snapchat's very, very different to Instagram, even though Instagram is, is trying to copy Snapchat in every single way right now with Instagram stories. And, you know, Twitter is very different. Um, they've assimilated Periscope. You've now got Twitter Live uh, built into Twitter. At the time of recording this, they're just about to get rid of Vine finally, and, and that'll become Vine Camera another part of Twitter. YouTube still is, is going strong. Uh, in terms of YouTube video, um, it's actually still way ahead of Facebook in terms of the amount of video that's being created. And, uh, you know, Google owns video still, but Facebook is, is catching up and fast. Not only has Facebook Live, but they have the benefit of 360-degree video as well as live streaming for VR content. How do you choose which of these to, to go on how do you differ what you're producing um, for all of these platforms? You can't possibly be on all of them all of the time, right? The answer is you are on all of them. <laughs> and then see you know, where it goes. Of course, you, you don't have enough time to be on all of them, but that's why I think creating the same piece of content, maybe with a different ending or um, a different length, is the answer because you kind of have to be on all of the platforms. Uh, in my opinion, Facebook is a lot more shareable now. And they're in the golden era of Facebook pre-monetization. You watching the video for three seconds and it counts as a view. So you actually look a lot more successful uh, with your videos on Facebook. And that's great. That's a great momentum that you can jump on uh, in the beginning. Because a lot of people that became successful on YouTube is because we had that opportunity also, you know, before they really counted the views, I guess. Uh, so you didn't have to watch the video the whole time and still counted as a view and the, the platform was not oversaturated so you had more chances to be discovered. So you kind of have to be everywhere in moderation. But I would definitely focus on Facebook and Musical.ly is one of the platforms that is um, underlooked and people don't pay attention to it because they feel it's all about nine-year-old girls uh, lip-syncing. And it's actually a platform just like Vine, where it allows you to lip sync if you want to, or you can upload um, 15 second comedy sketch and with your original sound, original editing, and everything. So, in that platform, is so engaged. I've never seen it, reminds me of YouTube back in 2008, 2009. Yeah. So, you kind of have to be everywhere and see what works for you and then double down on what works. Yeah, that's great. My daughter is just turned 11 this past week, and she is so all in in Musical.ly. She is a little comedian. She is so vibrant with her Musical.ly. It's like, literally, I'll see her watching. I'll watch her doing something peculiar, and then I'll be like, she's like, oh, I was making a Musical.ly. And I was like, oh, okay, very nice. That was awesome. But so I want to transition from that because my daughter also is a big fan of your company, Mooshwalks, right? Oh, so, thank you. Yeah, so... What you've created there is all these really fascinating looking, you know, unique pair of socks that are quite hilarious. They have ears and monster faces. And how did this happen? And, and what is what are some of the things that you've done to help grow this company over time? Oh, gosh, so much. Uh, but how it happened, it's kind of an inspirational story, I think, because it happened out of my burnout on YouTube. I was creating 23 videos a week. 
And I was exhausted. And I did that for about a year and a half straight. And I really didn't have a vacation. And I would wake up and edit and come up with ideas and write and act. And I just did so much, uh, so many things. And then at one point, I would come to my computer and I felt allergic to it. I'll just sit there and I'll have to shake. So I was like, oh my God, I've done it too many times. And I started to pull back a little bit and really trying to figure out, well, there's something, because something was missing. I was at my height of my YouTube career and I had all these opportunities coming and I would check my email and I would just get like, oh, I just don't want to do this. Something is not right. And so I started reading lots of books, one of which was uh, The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. He also wrote the book Chicken Soup for the Soul. And I read that book and I really liked it and I read it four more times and then it really made me think about, well, what is there that is missing? What is my passion? What is that that I want to do that is unique and different? Because I was just, I felt like I was racing in my own race and I wasn't really getting where I wanted to be spiritually. Mm. And uh, one morning I woke up and I just had this thought that I love socks. I should probably make socks. And it was during the time when YouTube stars were merchandising their brands and, and I was one of them where we put our logos on the t-shirts and I really hated that process and it really didn't feel authentic. And I wanted to create something that screamed Olga K's personality. And uh, I loved socks, nobody was making socks. I already took it as an invitation to explore uh, the opportunity instead of being afraid of it. And uh, I also had this very definite idea in the beginning that I don't want to just create another cute sock company with cute faces. I really wanted to create something that felt alive and told a story. And only recently I realized why I needed that so bad. As I was, uh, you know, waking up each morning, I, I finally thought, okay, well, they will be alive by having ears and the tails. And so they used to have tails. The tails had to fall off because it would get in the way of the shoe. But their original design actually had tails in them. And I Googled socks with ears and there's nothing that was available. And that brings me back to always look for a gap in any industry. And I saw that nobody was making the, those kind of socks. And some people might see it, well, like maybe there's a reason for it. Like why would anyone have ears on their socks? And for me, it was just like, wait a second, nobody has done that before. So I really should jump in and see if I can do it. And the beginning process of manufacturing was really difficult and hard as well because I knew nothing about it. So I had to like figure out um, every single step of it. And six different manufacturers turned me down because they said, well, I'm sorry, can you go to somebody else who does make ears because we don't make the ears. And I had to explain that, well, no one does. I'm trying to do something new. And after six uh, failed attempts, one factory said yes, and Moonshwalks were born. Touching on that, I mean, you know, I've seen from your content that you keep the content about what you're doing at the time. Like uh, recently you were at um, SkillsCon and uh, sharing that. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. But, you know, you are able to then have that segue where it's still also about mooshwalk sometimes. Now, you know, a lot of people get that wrong. A lot of brands get that wrong in terms of when to introduce the product and how to do it without upsetting the uh, community that you've built. You know, what's the secret there? How do you do that authentically without upsetting people? I think it's 
it's uh, all comes down to the reason why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, so my reason why I really wanted to give something unique and different to my audience. So it was not just me slapping my logo on something and say, hey, go buy this and you will, you know, represent Moosh Army brand. So it was something unique. And the reason I created this is to let girls stand out in the crowd. By wearing the socks, and it might seem like a commercial, but by wearing the socks, you actually have a lot of people talk to you and paying attention to you. And you're not just somebody, another person in the crowd. And in fact, me wearing my socks gave me a lot of business opportunities. And I would just go to the bar wearing my socks and meet many executives. <laughs> and one, one of the examples were uh, how I got on Amazon and where I became part of their exclusive program um, is just being at the bar at one of the festivals. And they approached me because of the socks. And I feel like the socks are the conversation starter. So I knew I was creating something unique and it was just not another opportunity to slap my name on something um, and it was just something that will actually make them stand out as well. Listen, Olga, we could talk to you all day about this, but we can't because we have a time limit. Podcasts no! can't last forever. I know. <laughs> it's been absolutely amazing having you on. Thank you so, so much for joining us today uh, and for being on VB Engage. Thank you so much, guys. This was a blast. And I just want to say one last thing. I came to this country with Ringling Brothers and uh, now they're shutting down after 146 years uh, being on the road. And that also brings me to a very business that, uh, point where you have to innovate. If you want to sustain for many more generations, you always have to be terrified that somebody else will do it better and just innovate. Absolutely. That's so great. All right. Well, then I guess the best thing to say then at the end of this podcast would be dos vidania, moi druzia. <laughs> Thank you so much to Olga K for jumping on. Uh, big fan of her. She's just killing it with all the stuff that she's doing with her company, Mooshwalks, and uh, all of the amazing content that she's putting out. Great, great stuff. A lot of valuable, actionable information in there. If you find your niche, look for areas where there is a gap where you can go in and be that person that owns that space. And she's done a great job with that. I'm pleased that we got a chance to chat with her. What an honor. Last week, we had another incredible episode. We had Stephen Gold with us. He is the CMO of IBM Watson Marketing. And so we talked a lot about AI and machine learning and how Watson is powering the marketing stack there for IBM's clients. That was very, very interesting stuff. And next week, we have a great treat with us as well. We are going to talk with Michael Steltzner. He is the CEO of uh, Social Media Examiner. And uh, next week is actually the Social Media Marketing World Conference that's, that goes on every year in San Diego. So we'll be talking to him. We'll be talking about some of the highlights from that event as well. So this has been episode 44 for Travis Wright. Goodbye. And for Stuart Rogers, it's Spogom. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>